On episode two of Inside the Lens, we get incredibly geeky. I have uh, Ted Kinsman here, and we talk about electron microscopy. We push beyond the limits of photography, even in our second episode, so it's going to be a lot of fun. We go down a lot of rabbit holes that photographers never get to see, and uh, get your propeller hat ready, because Inside the Lens is about to begin. I am here with uh, Ted Kinsman, and uh, you know I'm, I'm so I'm so glad to have you on the podcast here, uh, Ted. Especially uh, very early on, and you know we're bound to have you back on to talk about other stuff. But uh, many years ago, when I was first getting into my extreme macro photography, I think our paths crossed. And that we've had some enlightening and, for me, very inspiring discussions about all things macro, especially on the scale beyond what I can even accomplish with uh, the crazy camera gear that I have. Uh, I know that you're an expert in electron microscopy, or at least you're an expert to me. Uh, you've got all the fun tools and you know how to use them. So uh, welcome to the conversation, Ted. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here and, and uh, chit-chat about all things uh, photographic or electron or physics or or whatever happens. Whatever happens. You know, I love these conversations because they're somewhat uh, free-flowing uh, at, at the end of it. So I mentioned that uh, our conversation started around macro photography because there is a kind of a limit of light that, uh, that I think we face when we're trying to image things that are incredibly small. Yeah. And uh, l let's talk about that for a little bit because I think that lends into the whole history of electron microscopy, doesn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, the, the, the optical microscopes are good down to about a thousandth power. So um, beyond that region, it, it's very difficult to get really good images. Uh, nowadays, there's another form of optical microscopy, which is confocal, which is, uh, which is a whole other ballgame. But, but you can't uh, do that in the field, right? You need a no, you need no, big no. That's, lab that's a kind of equipment. serious to... laboratory technique with uh, multiple lasers and and the whole deal. So that's it, that type of optical microscopy is as difficult as electron microscopy. And it doesn't have the ability to go to the limits that electron microscopy does. So but, what, are the, uh, what are then the limits uh, of, of light? You know, okay, so why is that limit in place that you can't resolve? It's, uh, that's light the faster. wavelength nature of light. But uh, there's, there's more to it than that. Like uh, electron microscopy is really good for telling surface structures or the topography of a, of a sample. Well, electron, um, well, like optical photography, you can actually see into the sample. Um, so you get different information uh, on different magnification scales. So there's right. times when, when an optical microscope is easy and quick and you get the information. Uh, and there's other times when uh, you have to go to the electron techniques. So. And and so I'm with my camera, my digital SLR and a macro lens. That's uh, in, in my eyes, that's uh, a maximum magnification in photography terms. We talk about life size magnification and at one to one yeah. life size. I mean, if I were to take a, um, a frame of film, let, let's go back to that era because it's a great comparison to make. Um, if I take a frame of film and I shoot uh, at one to one life size, a photograph of a quarter on that frame yeah. of film. And then I get that film developed and I hold that frame of film up to the actual quarter and I overlap them together, they fit exactly. And so in photographic terms that uh, a lot of our audience would probably be uh, familiar with, that is sort of the, the magnification factors that photographers usually are familiar with. But yeah. 
what they don't realize is that at uh, at every magnification factor that you add, one to one, two to one, three to one, as you continue to get yep, closer and yep, closer, yep. you add one stop to your effective aperture. And uh, so in, in rough sense, I mean, there's some pupil calculations, too, that we don't usually have the numbers for that might offset it. Yeah. But uh, in, in the sense of photography, if I'm shooting at, say, I've got a special lens that does five to one magnification, I think you've got the same lens. It's the Canon MPE 65 millimeter lens. It's a yep. wonderful tool, a very difficult one to use, but uh, it's a wonderful tool um, at five to one magnification. If I have my camera set at F16, I have to add five stops to that. That's like F96 or something similar. And if yeah. I'm trying to shoot at extremely highly magnified uh, levels, like I've got equipment that lets me do uh, all the way up to uh, 12 to 1. Now, using that lens plus uh, um, uh, some extension tubes on there, which brings it to 6 to 1. And then you can use like a, 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 a telephoto converter uh, or you can use a Canon makes a, a life-size converter for one of their macro lens that basically just doubles the magnification factor. Like it's up to 12 to 1 magnification. Now, mm -hmm. if I take the maximum aperture on this lens, which is f2.5, and I add 12 stops to that, I'm at f180. Uh, and at f180, the wave nature of light is the culprit, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the the, the wave uh, nature of the electron itself allows for much uh, finer resolution. But there's a, a world of difference between an optical camera and an electron microscope. And what most people don't realize is that an electron microscope takes a beam of electrons and focuses that beam of electrons down to a very tight uh, point on a surface. And it's that electron's interaction with the surface, which is visualized through um, photomultipliers and collecting the electrons that are emitted from the surface. Um, what, what, what people don't realize is you're not taking a picture through an electron microscope all at once. The picture is taken pixel by pixel by pixel. So you can kind of think of it as like um, a musical song. You don't, uh, you don't get to experience the whole song until all the notes are played. And what the electron microscope does is it collects an image or a song note by note by note. So it's, and, it's the uh, mother of all grid panoramas. Uh, pretty much. That's a great way of actually thinking of it because each pixel uh, is collected at an individual point in time. Um, and, and they can be collected, an image could be collected in three or four seconds, or a very large uh, image like uh, four or 5,000 pixels across might take uh, five to eight minutes to collect, depending on the, the, the system that's used. So you have static yeah. subjects. And, um, and, and so electrons, they don't interact with things in the same way that light interacts with things either. No, not at all. It's, it's, it, it actually, you can think of it as almost like a, an electron bomb hitting a surface. And the electrons actually penetrate the surface, and which is called the penetration volume. And it looks like a teardrop-shaped sort of interaction. But uh, in that in that little volume, the electrons hit the sample, and then they give off what's called secondary electrons. And those secondary electrons are pulled into a detector. Um, and that's one form of, of uh, electrons that can be detected on that electron sample interaction. So, yeah, there's, there's, two, there's at least two different kinds of electron microscopy, yeah, right? Yeah, there's, there's actually a couple others. There's um, uh, photons can be given off, which is cathode luminescence, which is not used so much. It's actually got... A little bit of, of uh, interest in that technique recently in some of the biological work, but um, 
more commonly is a material science. So you use a, another electron, which is shot right back, which is called a backscattered electron. And that's kind of comparable to shooting a tennis ball at a wall, and that tennis ball bounces back off the wall. Um, and those are detected to, to look for different materials. The, the higher the atomic number, the easier it is for those electrons to bounce back. And, uh, and of course, when the electron hits a sample, it also gives off x-rays. And so all of those things can be measured to get information about a sample. And this and, is fascinating uh, stuff because it, it reminds me of the stuff that, you know, NASA puts up a, uh, a satellite uh, into orbit to collect X-rays, to collect all very specific frequencies of light, uh, and then somehow combines them right. together into something that is not only scientifically meaningful, but is also unbelievably beautiful for us to look at. And I know that you've had some great electron uh, images that uh, that I've seen in the past of anything from, uh, you know, parts like obscure, weird parts of plants to cells and viruses um, that the scale of which uh, is impossible to do with light. Uh, although, I mean, I've seen people do electron images of snowflakes and things like that, which you could yeah, actually there's visualize. There's actually only a couple light. of those. Um and they're they're really tricky to do. Well, because you, you have to, to you got to keep the subject cold. I would imagine you probably have to cover it with something before you even get started, yeah. so that the electrons bounce off of it properly, right? Well, the cool the cool thing about water is that uh, when you get it cold enough, it becomes very conductive. So beyond negative one hundred and fifty degrees Celsius, <laughs> it starts to become pretty conductive. And if you can get it down that low, then you can put it in a scanning electron microscope and it doesn't sublimate, but it still is conductive. So uh, it, it sort of works out. But it's a tricky, that's a tricky uh, image to take. And there's only a couple of those done, which I think were done by the National Bureau of Standards in uh, in Washington. But they're beautiful. But, uh, the, the point yeah, of this is that um, that when I see those images and I know where I am with photography and, and even if I can get something at that scale, what you don't really realize with the the electron uh, images that that uh, that you gather, that other professionals in that field gather, is that the depth of field is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. When I'm doing uh, the most extreme macro work, my depth of field is a fraction of a millimeter. But in most well, of the electron work that I've seen. It's a fraction of a millimeter for me, too, most of the time. But <laughs> uh, that fraction of a millimeter represents uh, a tremendous uh, depth compared to the magnification you're at. Exactly. So, yeah, but, yeah, you can, you can adjust the apertures and you can adjust the sample distance. Uh, and, and it's a lot. There's a lot of uh, similarities with working with opticals in the, with the sense that a small aperture will give you a long depth of a large working depth of field. So there is similarities um, in, well, I mean, when, when we're talking yeah, photography, there, we're talking uh, ISO, we're talking shutter speed, we're talking aperture. At least you've got an um, aperture. In, now, in, in, the it, electron optics are somewhat similar to actual optical optics. They call it electron optics, which is kind of a weird thing. But the electrons actually go in corkscrew patterns uh, with the magnetic fields generated with the lenses. But uh, corkscrew patterns aside, uh, it, it all works out mathematically to be just like a simple lens. And uh, the aperture that you use in, in the microscope depends, uh, affects the depth of field. The, the working distance, the distance between the final uh, electron lens and the sample will affect your, your, your um, depth of field also. Yeah. So 
So I, I've photographed, um, you know, the smallest objects that I photographed are like grains of pollen and they might mm -hmm. measure around 70 microns long or so uh, with, with optics. Um, yeah. And that's kind of the realm where electron microscopy picks up, right? We're talking about uh, like less than a tenth of a millimeter or so in size. Uh, oh, yeah. That visual yeah. Stuff can, um, and then and then you go much, much smaller than that. What is the yeah. what is the, the limit of resolution that you can get? What's the smallest thing that you can see? Well, um, let's see. Most of my machines, will, they, their magnification starts around 35 to 50x. And uh, I have three machines in the lab right here. And they pretty much tap out around 100,000x. So, <laughs> um, but that's still, uh, the neighboring university has a, a nano facility, which I often get into and use their machines. And, and that machine will tap out at a little bit over a million X. And uh, it, it's pretty fascinating. You can actually uh, visualize and see a cluster of five gold atoms. Uh, and when you can do that, it, it, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. I mean, it, it, after that, anything's easy. But um, <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. that gets the, the inner geek and scientist and all of us somewhat giddy to think oh, that oh, that technology, yeah. you can just, you can do that. I mean, the equipment is obviously not within the range of the average person to, uh, to even uh, dream of getting their hands on. But the fact is that, yeah, that, that, that's sitting there. You can image an atom. Now, okay, we're talking to photographers here, though, because there has yeah. to be some level of both scientific uh, value and beauty to, to the work oh, that's yeah. being created. And um, so five atoms, I'm sure it's fascinating but i don't know if that's necessarily <laughs> the most beautiful thing that's ever been imaged in front of an electron microscope no but they, they do some really cool stuff um they're they're uh, uh right now i'm working on a project where i'm visualizing um paramecium and, and pond water samples so i have a little sample of pond water and i have to prepare it with um, a, a solution of um glutaraldehyde which is a preservative and then uh, uh, after I do that, I have to run it through a series of, of alcohols to dry the specimen out and to get rid of all the water. And then uh, the specimen gets, gets put in a, a, a device, which is called a critical point dryer, which uh, is got to realize this sample is about the size of a dime. And uh, uh, then uh, the critical point dryer removes all of the water and solvents in the sample because the sample has to be completely dry to go into this high vacuum inside the microscope. Um, the next step that this, that this pond water, this pond goo has to do is I have to gold coat it with a, uh, a system called a sputter coater, which puts a, a couple, um, probably about a quarter of a micron of gold coating on it, which means it's electric, it's conductive, and, and that's a great way to shed the extra electrons that hit the sample. And then I'm all set to visualize and, and look at it. So here I've got this, this sample that's about the size of a dime, and I'm looking at something that's, that's equivalently the size of a micron. And so uh, I can spend pretty much a whole day looking at this sample to try to find out if there's any paramecians squirreled in the different openings or nooks and crannies of this sample that I want to photograph. And so sometimes you can you spend a lot of time just looking over a sample to try to find, is there a good specimen there to photograph? So it's kind of like you walking over a field and you're going to photograph a, uh, you know, a nice uh, uh, cricket or a little, 
a little butterfly, but you can't see that cricket or butterfly until you're like three or four inches away from it. Yeah. And the so, whole field might be, you know, gigantic and you're hunting for that one specific point of interest yeah. and you're not sure yeah. where it's going to end up. So I'm sure now, how, how do you do that with, uh, do you have like some sort of a visual aid? Because you said that with the electron microscope, it might take five to eight minutes to, to image something, but are, yeah, are no, you shooting a, blind or? Well, there's a preview imagery, which there's a difference between like taking a, a final image and a preview. So it's kind of like um, uh, switching channels. You're, you're, you've got a low resolution TV and you, you, you keep moving the sample around and looking at the re low resolution samples. And when you finally find a good spot, then you, then you, you know, hit the, the take a picture button and, uh, and it, it builds that picture over a lot of time. And so, and so the, these end result images, um, you know, I've seen a lot of them that have, have color, but I wouldn't imagine that yeah. electrons can give you color information at all. No, this, that's, this is a huge problem because um, I'm involved with, with my, primarily use, my primary use of uh, scanning electron microscopy is to generate images for education and uh, to get uh, pretty much young people interested in science and just show the cool stuff that takes place in science. So to do that, the images really have to be in color to engage um, young viewers. Um, so because the electrons, when you record an image, the image is really linked to how many electrons are given off per pixel. So a bright spot on a scanning electron microscope represents a lot of electrons reflected or secondary electrons or backscattered electrons or what have you coming from that particular pixel. So it's a black and white image. And then the process is how oh, they have to be colorized. And uh, typically they're hand colorized, which means that each image might be anywhere from an hour to four or five hours to colorize, depending on how much work you want to do on it. Or I've, uh, I've recently come up with some techniques um, where I, I combine images from different detectors and apply a different color to each detector and through the wonders of Photoshop can come up with a colorized image in a, probably five to ten minutes. Interesting. Um, almost an automated technique, so which is kind of cool. the different detectors will provide you sort of almost, it's not like we're talking wavelengths here. We're just talking that they, no. they represent the, the same subject matter in a different way as if I have like something that I could throw into a red channel and a blue channel. And, exactly. and sort yeah. of see how so they I'll interact. Take a, I'll take like the secondary electron image and I'll put that into a red channel. I'll take the backscattered image and I'll put that into a blue channel and I'll have this uh, this trippy psychedelic picture of uh, whatever it is I'm taking. And so like, it's not representative of any actual colors or anything. It's, no, it's just a, a that, visual aid, right? And that's a problem because, you know, scientifically, you really like to have uh, a colors represent something. Um, so when you do a colorization of a, of a scanning electron, if you're photographing uh, human tissue, you know, you might pick reds or something like that. Um, so that's just for the viewer's aid, because you typically you might be down so far that that optical wavelengths have no meaning there anyhow. Exactly. So if I'm photographing a bacteria that's um, just a few fractions of a micron across, it's it's uh, you know, it might be the same wavelength as blue light, but you know, who knows what color it really is. True. Now, so, if you had uh, like a vial full of exclusively that bacteria uh, and it reflected a particular color, that might give you some yeah. indication as to uh, what an individual piece of it would uh, would be able to be colorized as. But the opportunities yeah. for that, I think, are few and far between.
Yeah, it's it's usually just you're you're colorizing. It's late at night. You're listening to some music, and you're like, oh, you know, I'd I'd like a pink virus right now, and you know, or you know, later on you can change it to green or something. But once you develop the 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 layers in Photoshop, each with a different color, then you can adjust them. And now in, in Photoshop, do you use like the uh, the hue and saturation adjustment layer, and you click the little colorize button, and you start painting on with a particular color, or what's the technique um, that you go through? It's 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 it can be that simple. Um, there's actually about six different techniques. One is to um, uh, just pick a color and you can paint that color as a new layer with a colorization uh, attribute for that layer. Or a blending mode or something that allows oh, yeah, it you to... You can change the blending yeah. modes. Um, a lot of uh, uh, times you can use a drop shadow to increase uh, the interest. And, and it, although that's, that's sort of... You're changing the image around, but yeah, you're, you're riding you're the line between more. scientific viability and um, aesthetics, right? Aesthetics, yeah. And a lot of times, uh, you know, you got a great scientific shot, and now it's, the question is to take it to that next level uh, and make it really uh, stand out as a beautiful. Uh, representation of something so um, okay um i like this conversation i want to go out and make my own electron microscope how would i do that ted well uh let's see making your own electron microscope you might want to get a degree in physics first <laughs> um and uh, you can study a lot of math along the way. You're going to need that for the electron optics. The reason why I but, ask uh, is because I know they're so absurdly expensive. Uh, how uh, much? They can be. They can be. Um, if, you, if you were to go out today and go to, uh, like, Zeiss and say, I would like a top-of-the-line nano-level microscope, uh, and say you don't get a lot of... Uh, bells and whistles on it is probably going to set you back around six hundred thousand dollars but you really want all those extra bells and whistles so that, that that'll probably bring you in around a million dollars but keep in mind there's more to it than that so you've just spent a million dollars on your machine there's something called a maintenance contract that you're going to want to have helped out because uh uh it's kind of like uh I don't even know what it's like. It's, it's like a really expensive car that breaks down every few miles. Something will break down on it. <laughs> it's like the very so, first computers. It's like the, the, the Univac one. And yeah, you have yeah, to hire yeah. uh, full-time uh, employees to go around and change out vacuum tubes, right? Yeah, but the maintenance, a maintenance contract on a top-of-the-line microscope for doing nano research, uh, and I was just showing one of these last week, is $60,000. A year? And a year. Wow. So um, you better have that in, in your funding for uh, keeping keeping everybody running. And so that, um, that really says to everybody that's listening, well, I'll, I'll never, ever be able to experience what we're talking about in this conversation. Is that true or is there? No, that's, that's for the top of the, you know, this is like the peak research. Um, Canada has three of those machines, I think, in all of Ontario. One's at... Um, I think Queens College has one, um, and I think there's two others in in Ontario. Oh, and we should but, mention uh, that you you work at uh, RIT, the Rochester Institute I, of Technology. I work at right? Rochester Institute of Technology. I have three scanning electron microscopes, but they're not at that level. My machines uh, typically only go, since they're used for biological work, um, most of the times the kids are imaging less than thirty thousand x. 
So these are not state-of-the-art machines, and they can't go to uh, the levels that a nano researcher would need. Well, so uh, hence they're a lot less expensive. A lot less. Well, and so in, in that yeah. case, if we're looking to, uh, uh, to, can I buy one on eBay? Like, is that something yes, that exists? You can buy one on eBay. Uh, let's see. I have actually seen some really nice machines go on eBay for $10,000. You know uh, what? People so, spend more than that on a camera lens. So oh, exactly. Yeah. Well, so why not buy one? you got room right there. I see. I see you got a lot of room in the background there. Get rid of that brown couch. Put a scanning electron microscope right there. It'd fit in that corner. Uh, what, wouldn't it though? Uh, it I, would. I think that I'd have some. I, I'd need to get spousal approval on one of those though. Oh heck no! <laughs> <laughs> no, sweetheart, it's uh, it's a business expense, really. It uh, is a business. You know, she might she might like running it. You never know. You know, it, it, it's exploring the world in a different way. It, and as it, photographers, it I mean, is. we're all exploring the world. You know, when we're going into the uh, the microscopic, uh, you know. It, electron micro, uh, microscopy kind of subject matter. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that you've been amazed numerous times at the kind of things that show up uh, as an image. Oh, it is. It is. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's fascinating to see the, the structures and to, uh, to talk with researchers and you get down and you look at all the, the guts, the little teeny tiny pieces of like a mosquito eye and each eye has three little neurons on it. And now, stuff. who funds the oh, research nice. into mosquito eyes? I mean, what, what's the... Oh, <laughs> actually, there's a huge amount of mosquito research because... Uh, um, Malaria and know, things like that, I guess. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Mosquitoes are actually a big problem. So as far as insects goes, mosquitoes is one of the, the more researched of the insects uh, because of the issues involved with the uh, disease... Uh, uh, carrying diseases yeah. and uh, human interactions and stuff. Now but you, you can see all that structure, and you're like, "Oh, that's you know, that's what I, uh, that's what I experience every time one lands on me, and I, you know, like, got it, <laughs> you know, smack it." And it splatters all over the place. And uh, you know, I've, I've gone structure, out to, uh, to do some photo shoots. Uh, we were talking about one before we started recording, uh, a, a star trail image that I had made in Killarney Provincial Park, a place that you've uh, canoed by, I think you had mentioned. Yep. And... Uh, Man, I was, I was, it was like giving blood. Uh, you, like, I'm, I'm sure I covered myself with enough DEET to give me some kind of cancer a, a few years from now in order to fend <laughs> off those mosquitoes. Uh, so I, it's, it's interesting to see that kind of research. And the fact that you're doing oh, this yeah. on a regular basis is fascinating to me because you've probably been doing it for a very long time. How long have you been into that field for? Um, I've been working with scanning electron microscopes since around 2005. So really about 10 years I've been uh, in that field. And, um, and in, those, in, a, in those 10 years, uh, I just, I, I want to kind of drill into this. Uh, what was your first experiences with it? And what were the most fascinating, interesting things that you've seen in that past decade under an electron oh, microscope? Wow. Uh, it's really hard to say. I've, I've looked at everything from microfossils to, uh, uh, you know, I, I go on vacation and I'll bring little buckets of pond scum home. You know, sometimes I'm not supposed to, but uh, one of the deals, you're not supposed to smuggle uh, uh, what they call extremophiles out of uh, Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. But uh, one of the reasons I, I actually went hiking in Wyoming was to, to bring home some of these extremophiles for the microscope. And, and for the record, you decided structures. not to do that because you weren't allowed to, right? I wasn't allowed to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyhow, you, you look at those, those uh, extremophiles and you're like, what the heck are these things? How can they be alive? And, uh, and, and you visualize 
uh, you're able to, to take pictures of that stuff and, um, and use them for educational purposes and, and things like that. But there's, there's, there's life all around. And even on the smallest piece, if you're in the middle of a hiking trail, uh, you're like, hey, look at this rock. It's green. What's up with that? And you can take a little sample of that, snap the rock in half, and you can actually visualize some sort of weird lichen that grows on this rock and goes in a fraction of a millimeter and, and is actually breaking the rock apart. So that's kind of a cool, a cool thing. And but, yeah, um, if you were to go to Antarctica and take an ice core sample and, and melt that down and take a look at whatever was found within that, you'd find interesting things there too. If you yeah, broke you a piece of rock open, you'd probably find some microorganisms that long ago had somehow lived inside of that, uh, whether yeah, they be a fossil can, or not. Stuff but. can be all over the place. Um, and that's and that's true. You really can't escape life here on Earth, and you'll see those structures, um, whether they're diatoms or, um, you know, whatever whatever kinds of fossils or, or something like that. I've, I've actually got some great samples that were just sent to me from uh, the bottom of the Mediterranean, and they have deep water radiolari on them, which are these beautiful little structures that have look like geodesic domes and holes and stuff in them and they're, they're really fantastically beautiful um they've been photographed before but still they're they're um they're kind of like the super models of the microscopy world you know everybody <laughs> wants to take pictures of them and you never get tired of looking oh, at I, them i'd love to see yeah. uh, that image now uh you haven't imaged them yet though you said uh, those, uh, yes, I have imaged those. Oh, well, then maybe I you can, because uh, you say that there's something uh, of a supermodel. Yeah. I'd like to see a picture yeah. of that. Maybe we could put it in the show notes yeah. for this uh, for this episode. Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, but there's yeah, there's a lot of uh, really interesting things. I like um, uh, uh, diatoms are a common freshwater and saltwater uh, microbe. And uh, they come in all different shapes and sizes. And they eat rotten leaves in the fall in the streams. I think they're one of the, the predominant... Uh, decomposers in the, in the streams in the fall. I think I saw a picture uh, when we had gotten together once uh, in the past. I think you showed me one where you were coloring all of the different uh, species of these uh, oh, yeah. on a leaf. Yeah. And it, it, for me, I mean, okay, this is, uh, I like to say the world of macro photography is the universe at our feet. Uh, but really, mm -hmm. there is an entirely different level of that that is just completely obscured uh, by light because light just doesn't cooperate. And uh, you've got to take out that yep. electron microscope to, uh, yep. to, to get into that. The next, the next level. Down, now, is, so. is there a level uh, beyond that? Like you said, you can measure atoms, right? Uh, with some of the you, highest. You can go down the atoms. It's really difficult to do it. And don't don't think like, um, you know, the researchers that do that are just going to sit down and go after that in, in uh, uh, an afternoon. It's, it really takes a while to get the machine tuned to that kind of, of resolution. Um, typically, they use a, a different machine for those high magnifications, and that's something called uh, a TEM, which trans stands for a transmission electron microscope. And in that case, uh, little tiny structures are cut very, very thin. Uh, when I say very thin, they're like a fraction of a micron thick. And, and transmission, like I know, uh, you know transmission optics actually go through. Yeah, so sample. like in, in optical principles, uh, like uh, transmission uh, or transmitted light would be passing through the subject. Say if you've got yeah. it on a microscope slide, and then you capture the results, and yeah. that's also possible with electrons too. So thin it's, that the electrons interact in some way, uh, but yeah, still pass it, through it. Exactly, they'll pass through, and you can kind of think of that as as having a a slide in a slide projector. Um, where that, that little tiny sample is that thin uh, slide that you put in your slide projector. 
but instead of projecting it on a wall across the, the room, you, uh, you project it on a wall that's like 10 miles away. And <laughs> it's just, you know, huge. And uh, that's, that's, a, that's a, a transmission electron microscope. And they routinely operate at a quarter million to a half million magnifications. And uh, they're a whole other game. They, they're very high energies, and uh, the, the interactions with the, uh, the samples can be very extreme. So uh, that was actually the first kind uh, of microscope invented in the 1930s. Really? That, the 1930s um, that came about? 1930s, yeah. Wow. It was the first uh, uh, transmission electron microscope in Europe. And uh, it wasn't until the mid-60s that uh, the Cambridge microscope started at the market. Wow, okay, so, so but I, I got to wrap my head around 1930s. Here I am thinking that this is a construct of the digital era, uh, that this, no, is, this is something no. that existed once we had computers um, and the ability to record all of this information digitally. Back and, then, and, uh, I mean, how, how would you make, uh, would, were you making images or were you? Oh, how they, would you... Make, they would actually record the images on a sheet of film. Oh, they wow. would project the electrons onto a sheet of film and then over the course of, uh, I don't know what the exposures were, maybe uh, 10 or 15 minutes, they would actually develop, uh, they would actually create an image on that film with the electrons. So, um, surprising side note, um, that uh, some of that, that research was done at the University of Toronto, and the first working uh, transmission electron microscope, or the first electron microscope in the world, and in North America, uh, was at the University of Toronto, and that is uh, was still at, on display at the uh, the Science Center in Toronto. It was in one of the the back rooms, tacked to the side of a wall with a little plaque underneath it, collecting dust. Uh, I'm sure because uh, nobody knows what it is or why why nobody, it's still there nobody, in the corner. And you know, you, you get there and you're like, oh, look at that! It's like you know, let's just get down on our knees and, and worship below it. But uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's it's there, and I think I. Uh, I think it might have been on the wall there the last time I visited, maybe eight or ten years ago. But by the sound so. of it, uh, Ted, you've got your finger on the pulse of a lot of this stuff. So uh, I'm curious, you know, you, you know where things have come, you know where things are now. Like, are, are there still advancements being made in this field? Or have we, have we exhausted the resolution that, a, that an electron microscope can attain? Um, that's a hard thing to predict. Uh, right now, the, the future is in really strange, uh, well, let's just say one of the things right now is, is, is in the world of biology is you want to really understand the con connection of all the neurons, say in like a human brain. So what some of these, con these companies have done is they've built a special scanning electron microscope that instead of having one scanning beam, have 64 scanning beams, and they all take 64 pictures at once. I'm not sure the layout of the inside of these chambers, but uh, remember it all has to take place at a vacuum. So what these machines do is they take like a two by two inch chunk of say human brain, and it's frozen because you can, you can keep it cold and it's, it's not going to, uh, um, give off gases that are going to hurt the vacuum system. And it's placed inside the, the electron microscope and uh, a one micron sheet is chopped off of it, is shaved off the top of this chunk of material. So it's imaged by 
by 64 separate beams and then at the same time at the same time and then they shave a layer off and then do it yep. again and again and, and again and again and what they get is a 3d picture of the neurons and their uh, researchers are now working towards uh, building a a 3d model of all of the neurons con connectivities of all of the neurons in a human brain they think that might that project might be 10 or 15 years out so to simplify the process they thought well let's start with something like the optical neuron the, the neurons in the optical cord from the eye if we can get an idea of what's happening there or image like a, a mouse brain or something like that to, exactly, to see how yeah, yeah that, that kind of uh, falls something through. something relatively simple that you could do in three or four years um but that's that's the idea of where do all those neurons go how are they all connected to each other and what is that actual structure and one of the ways of doing that is with these fancy um, electron microscopes. Um, but but don't don't think that that's the end of it because there's other kinds of materials that, that can interact. And one of them is a, a helium ion microscope, which instead of using an electron uses a helium ion. And uh, that helium that helium ion is much heavier. It has a smaller wave function than, even than an electron, which is bizarre. And uh, uh, you can do some really strange things with that. So uh, different different types of images and, and different types of, uh, of research that are that are on the horizon. Ah, that's crazy. So, you know, I, I, and here I am thinking. Oh, uh, the, 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 oh, and then you can also use gallium ions too. <laughs> well, and I guess all of these, probe, these exotic yeah. ideas come up when you push the, the limits of something. So electron microscopy can only take you so far in so many different directions. And so then you have yep. to discover new ways to approach maybe the same subject matter to maybe those uh, helium ions will see it differently, uh, even at the same resolution, but have a different way of interacting. Maybe it uh, can be used at different temperatures or it can interact in different ways. And that's, and that's actually... Um Many of the pictures that you see now in, uh, associated with uh, scanning electron microscopy are actually what the, what's abbreviated as FIB images. And what an FIB microscope is, is a focused ion beam. And they usually use gallium. Liquid gallium is, is the source of the ions. And that gives a, a, a little bit different picture and it, uh, it can also give pictures with a lot less noise in them than the similar scanning electron microscope pictures <laughs> at a high magnification. I think this so is, this, this is so much fun. There's not just one technique. There's so many different techniques. It, it's that, amazing that to see how, how like science is using I, photography is a relative term. I mean, we're not using photons yeah, here at this and, point, and, um, but it, it's using images to, to not only help discover new things, uh, you know, from uh, extremophile organisms and uh, identifying the, the different bits and pieces of how the brain works. I mean, th yeah. th there's no other way that I could think of that you'd be able to do that. And the technology in order to accomplish that, like you said, 10, 15 years out. But that reminds me of, um, of when, you know, the, the, the human genome was first mapped and how much effort, how gargantuan that project would have been. And now it's almost an everyday thing that that can be done uh, on an individual basis. I mean, it, it yeah. would cost a lot, yeah, but, um, it, it's now, yeah, you know what, y you want that to happen? You just sign up for it. Yep. Yeah. And it's, and things are uh, constantly changing, but the, uh, uh, the ability, if you think, you know, is, is we are really visual animals and we really like to see a picture. And uh, these machines help uh, researchers or they help, uh, uh, you know, people interested in science to see a picture 
uh, to not only get interested in a subject, but maybe help them understand a subject. What's going on in that structure? You know, when I look down deep, uh, I'm interested in this process. I'm, I'm interested in how this organism moves or behaves or, or whatever. And you can look at it in a very, very detailed structure, which helps us understand. So that's, that's what the images are all about, you know, helping us understand the world around us. And I look forward to seeing yeah. more stuff from you in this field, uh, Ted. It, it's been a great chat. Thank you so much for sitting down great. with me Thanks to have this conversation. Um, is there a place where people can go to, uh, to find some of your work or to get in touch with you if they have any questions? Um, sure. They can uh, follow uh, me on Instagram at uh, E-M-K-P-P-H, which happens to be my email at R-I-T. Or they can uh, they can go to a website which is a sciencephotography.com, uh, or they can just Google me and look at I don't know weird images that are used on cell phones or something. Thank you so, so much. Uh, you know, yeah, thanks for having me. And and I know that I'm going to have you back on at some point in the future too to talk about. Uh, I know you do a lot of stuff with extremely high speed flash photography, and who knows what other yeah. conversations we can get into uh, that yeah. involve sort of the extreme limits of of what you can um, see I'll, or at least also what we can image. X-ray work. Don't forget X-rays. <laughs> I know I've seen some of your X-rays <laughs> of things like flowers and household objects that are just fascinating. Yeah, so I just just did one on freak flowers. Oh geez, so. that's that's fun. Uh, I can't wait to see that too. But uh, and seaweeds and so seaweed too. You know, th seaweed, those big yeah. beautiful art pieces. Uh, yeah, those are sort of for art uh, to get people interested in the sciences and think, okay, X-rays. You know, what what hasn't been seen in X-rays. So oh, I'll have to come back on and give you a, a year full of x-ray too. <laughs> You'll keep us on the yeah. edge of our seats. And uh, if yeah. you want to uh, find out more about this podcast, any images that we might have talked about here, uh, check it out at uh, the thisweekinphoto.com uh, website. You'll find a link uh, that has this exact podcast, episode number two in there. And uh, if you want to see more of my work, you can find it there as well. All my contact information is there or at doncom.ca. Thanks so much. You know, it's conversations like this that really make me happy as a photographer because I can push into new limits. I can explore new areas of, I, I don't even want to call it photography. It's its optics, it's imagery. Uh, it's exploring the world that we can't see with our own eyes. And, uh, and I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. There will be many more of this uh, coming soon. So stay tuned for the next episode.